Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. I've been saying I'm trying to get the gaps down between episodes and this one has come quicker than the last one, so that's good. Also, for the first time, I've already got the interview recorded for the next episode, so there definitely won't be a big gap between this one and the next one. I'll probably put that out in a couple of weeks or something. Anyway, this episode is going to be covering a dystopian film called Kamikaze 89, uh, despite me promising to cover some less obscure stuff, which I will be doing, but I do think it's interesting to do stuff that people uh, haven't necessarily heard of as well. I hadn't heard of this film until I was introduced to it by my guest on this episode, that's Sean McTiernan, who I'm aware of through a podcast he does called All Units. All Units is a film podcast where it's kind of doing like a anatomy of the thriller genre thing like breaking down the the, the genre with a different theme and different films um as he goes through his episode we go into a bit of detail on exactly what he's doing at the end of our conversation but i'll just say now it's a really interesting and intelligent podcast and i don't think it's a, a million miles away from the kind of thing i'm doing with this podcast so if you'd like this i think it might be worth you checking that out because i think you'll you'll probably like it so just search for all units on itunes or whatever you use to listen to your podcast and you should be able to find it quickly before i get on to the conversation with sean a bit of news on the podcast i've started a patreon which for anyone who doesn't know is a, a thing that allows people to give uh, contributions of money to people for for the work that they do it's set up as a monthly thing but you can cancel it at any time so you can if you just want to give a one-off donation you can set it up and then cancel it straight away all I'm looking to do at the moment is cover the hosting costs of the podcast, which is nine euros a month. So not a lot of money at all. I'm just trying to make it so basically the podcast isn't costing me money. So if you can afford to give me a bit of money and you think what I'm doing is worthwhile, that would be great. If you don't want to, that's also fine. I'm not going to be locking anything off. I'm still going to be keeping the, the podcast completely free. So nothing's changing in that respect. If I do end up getting more than nine euros a month, that'd be great. Um, a lot of work does go into this. And as I work as a freelancer, I do often end up spending time that I could and probably should be spending earning money on doing this podcast instead. And, you know, with like re- normally entails like reading books, uh, doing research, taking notes, finding interviewees, arranging times to do the interview, doing the interview, editing the podcast. It, it does take a lot of time. So if you do think that what I'm doing is worthwhile, mind giving me a couple of quid for that that would be great if I do end up making more money than the nine euros I do want to think about things that I could give you back in return for the money that you're giving to me I don't know what that could be perhaps something like if people make a certain contribution they can choose a subject for a future episode I don't know if that would work or not but you know, perhaps people feel that if they if I'm getting a certain amount of money, I should be producing a certain amount of episodes without a certain amount of time. I don't know. If you've got any ideas on what you would want in return for your money, then please let me know. I'm open to this changing based on what you tell me you want. Just email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. Tweet me at utopianhorizons, whatever. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you'd want to change. Um, let me know how you want, want it to work and I can potentially change it to do that. If you do want to have a look at that, it's patreon.com slash utopian horizons. As I said before, if you don't want to give me any money or can't afford it, that's fine too. If you could instead 
give the podcast a rating or review on iTunes or tweet about it, tell someone you know you think might like it instead, that would be great as well. Okay, that's enough of that. On to my conversation with Sean about Kamikaze 89. So joining me now is Sean McTiernan. Thanks for joining me, Sean. No problem. Happy to be here. Sean, uh, I'm familiar with Sean from a podcast he does, a film podcast called All Units. So I asked Sean about a film that he might like to talk about, that's Utopian or Dystopian. So first thing I wanted to ask is um, why you chose this particular film, which is uh, Kamikaze 89. What, what, of all the films you could have chosen, what, what made you pick that one? Uh, to be annoying, I suppose, is a big thing. Oh, okay. um, well, no, not really. <laughs> uh, so I, there are a lot of dystopian and utopian. There's a lot of stuff that comes to mind when I think of that. But this specific movie um, is interesting to me for a lot of reasons. It It is sort of cyberpunk, but not cyberpunk. Yeah. But it is also often, dis- like if you read a lot of reviews of this, it's often people saying, ignore the story, just look at the star of the movie. The star of the movie is Rainer Winner Fassbender. So one of the, I mean, one of my favorite artists in any medium, uh, I would say. Um, he was a, film director in Germany in uh in the seventies and he was very prolific, controversial, and very quickly he was very dead. He died when he was thirty seven. Mm. Um but this is his last this movie came out a month after he died and his central performance in this movie is very, very famous. He's sort of this lumbering, um, perspiring, deadpan figure in a leopard skin suit. Um we can go into his character a bit later on. But uh I, I so all the reviews I have ever read before I saw this movie were like ignore the story, just watch Fastbender. But then I actually watched it and I thought the story was very interesting, right? It's it is especially in light of the reviews. So the start of the movie says that Germany has become the greatest superpower in the world. Yeah. There's no crime. Um oh, industry no solved all problems, there's no unemployment. Yeah. yeah. And what maybe what is interesting to me about that is so many of the reviews of this film are like, just state that as fact. Yeah. You know? They're like, yeah, no, that's that's what's happened. Instead of maybe the entire film is supposed to undermine that initial assertion, right? Um I mean it's it's almost um, obvious as soon as it gives you as it gives you the setup, everything is perfect. It's obvious almost from then that it's not going to be, surely. Yeah, you would hope. Um yeah. but I think I think a lot of it has to do with so this film everybody the costumes are very sort of um kind of sci-fi on a budget. Mm. Uh Return to Oz is feels like a kind of a similar thing or uh Liquid Sky or something like that kind of early 80s punk sci-fi. But it's obviously not not everything is not fine, you know, and and he uh, Fassbender plays this detective who is investigating a bomb threat in the building that produces all of the media in the country, like that owns 100% of all media in the country and controls, it's basically implied through that, controls everything about the country. Just before we get to like the details of the plot, perhaps if we could just give people a kind of idea of like the contours of this world. So as you said, we get this set up, like everything's perfect or there's no unemployment, blah, blah, blah. The, the reality of it, obviously it's a world, a decaying world, a world of... Um, scarcity it looks like it looks really empty like there's loads of scenes where he like looks in rooms at people and there's like almost no furniture and it's like paint peeling off the walls i mean you you talked about it being like cyberpunk but not it's interesting like blade runner's obviously this vision of a world that's decayed 
um, but it's it's a future that's already happened decaying, whereas this film looks like our world decayed, if you see what I mean. Definitely, yes. Yeah, no, that, that is a really good distinction, actually, to draw. And I think that setting part of the, the film is quite important because... Uh, like so, there's Alphaville. I don't know if you've seen Alphaville, the I've John seen, uh, movie. I ha- I've seen a bit of it, but I haven't seen the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, it's just the setting is that it was, you know, it filmed what was contemporary and said, you know, and did set it as a sci-fi setting, which is a very like glib Godard joke, right? But it's basically like saying here, sci-fi is obviously about the here and now, so I'll just show you that. But yeah, no, it's like that as well, and partially that's to do with budget, right? But the other half, as you say is all of this emptiness because um and a lot of this is made clearer in the book this is based on which is uh called murder on the 31st floor but there's all this kind of boasting about low birth rates outside marriage there's a lot of other and there's this suggestion you never see normal people in this movie like everybody is either part of this kind of media conglomerate that they're part of the government there are no normal people and there's a you see them kind of being herded by sort of militarized psychiatrists uh into into a van at some stage yeah and um, that's that's about it and uh there is a suggestion i mean one of the great one of the great tip-offs that this present presentation that everything is good is possibly spurious is how there are no more suicides in germany um yeah. but there are a huge amount of quote-unquote accidental deaths oh with my my bad translation that i had an unexpected exodus Kind of well, I think yeah, I think unexpected exodus is quite a good phrase as well because it's very bureaucratic, right? And like, this is it approaches it from a different angle, but this is kind of really that classic bureaucracy kind of overwhelming everything. Yeah, that twisting of language is, uh, I guess, one that you just of the time this was made, where you still have the Cold War. That's something you'd associate with like totalitarian communism. This rephrasing of stuff where. It's obvious what it really means, but you can't say what it really means. Yeah, exactly. We, exactly. we still have that though in different forms, like enhanced interrogation techniques, and which means torture, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And so on. No, no. It was it was very because I read some of the book again um, to to prepare for this, and it was totally accidental. But there was a a description of the the amount of power people were willing to give the government to stop perceived moral indiscretions because the book is so tied into this time limit that he has he has four days to solve this this murder it was this big paragraph about how you know that this fake morality had been able to give the government more and more power it couldn't they couldn't divorce from it and then like he looks at his watch and it's it's 17 past eight right but it said it's 2017 and it was very like it was a bit cheesy but it was very striking to me they basically described what was happening and then said it's 2017 yeah. um which i think might be on purpose um there are definitely when he's saying like oh this is happening there in that chapter in the book that kind of explains the whole plot which happens in this film in a in a, in a scene with franco nero that Put is no more emphasis is put on it than anything else, so it kind of just drifts past. Mm. But that scene happens to be around the time where it's going through years of the twentieth century, but in like hours, if you know what I mean. Okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, the idea that words are forced into meaning other things, or the you know accidental exodus, or whatever is uh, like that is a big theme of the book is uh, or the film as well. You you look at this film right, and it's Fassbinder pouring with sweat. Always, leopard print is kind of his signature, right? He wears 
uh, a leopard print suit. And then when he's playing tele- tennis in the police disco, he wears like a leopard print jogging outfit. And then he's got a leopard print like car as well, I seem yeah. to remember. But uh, all of this is sort of this gestured individuality, but really like his character and the character that, again, in the book, but also in the film is is taken on because he always solves his case. And that's a very classic, you know, um, detective fiction thing. This guy always solves his case. But you get a sense by the end what that actually means is he always resolves the case, if you know what I mean. Like he always finds somebody to prosecute. Yeah. You know, like Would he's you... not he's not pinning it on everybody, but he does. You know, they needed somebody to be guilty, so they picked him. Yeah. What, what do you make of the 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 fashion thing? Like, the, like it's not just him. Like in his leopard print skin, there's like there's a guy wearing like a pink cowboy outfit. Like everyone's dressed in like completely bizarre manner. Like you said, there's no like normal people. It kind of, I don't. It reminded me. I don't know if you've ever read Ubik, but. The Philip K. Dick book. Yeah. yeah, I think so. It reminded Eight me of, there's ago. this scene, and it's not important, I think, but there's a there's a moment where he just describes what people are wearing, and he just seems to pick up the most random like bits of clothing. Like, you know those hats with propellers on that you only see in cartoons? Yes. Like, someone's wearing that, like, com- I don't know what you'd call it, like, completely bizarre, like, postmodern dress. And also, obviously, Philip K. Dick's got an obsession with decaying places and like uh entropy so yeah it made me think of that but yeah sorry i'm getting off point but do you, what do you make of that fashion thing like is is it just like sci-fi low budget thing well so i think par- like wolf Graham, right the guy who ostensibly directed this even though i think it's pretty there's pretty much consensus that fassbender did an orson wells and took took it over uh, okay. um, you can yeah you can really see like his um his cinematographer uh xavier schwarzenberger uh, there's a there's a thing Fassbender does which is like kind of associated with Michael Bay now where he spins around people while they're talking. There's a lot of that in this movie. But I think the clothes... So I always think when I see dystopian fiction or um, something like that and when it's low budget, right, they want to make the film look appealing. They have what they have on hand, you know, so they kind of make weird outfits. Like Mr. Freedom's a good example of that actually as well. Um, the William Friedkin movie. But uh, what I always think is it's not oh, in the future, you know the future's ridiculous because, you know, people are wearing these ridiculous outfits. Mm. It's more, fashion is arbitrary. Like, it's a short line to say, like, fashion is really important and everything like that, but what we're wearing is as strange. You can make what they're wearing out, out of what we're wearing, and it's iterative. You know, that's the thing. Like, whatever, mm. whenever you're looking at it, it's an iteration of what is happening now. Like, and that's a big thing, I think, to focus on something like the like these you know utopian or dystopian society dystopian as presented here is that it is very easy you know it, it it is about to happen is the is the thing even those ridiculous outfits it's outlandish as they are and like another thing to remember about the outlandish outfits in this movie is that they're all worn by the richest people in the country mm. right like almost everybody you see is one of the one of the people at the top of society and they're able to you know the idea is there's this like death of total death of culture in the movie as well yeah um so that's kind of being emphasized i think you know the leopard skin print suit definitely reminds me of you know like like you know when cops have like punisher logos on their police cars right you know something like that that's like this ostensibly it's this kind of you know rebellious individualistic thing but it really is just no i'm this is just what i'm doing but i am going to 100% be a 
manifestation of state power or whatever, yeah. which is definitely what he does. Because he goes through, he doesn't, in, in the book, they make a big point. Sorry, I keep talking about the book, but it, the book is a lot more clear than the film and story points. But it, you can see it throughout the film. He doesn't arrest anybody. He tells other people to arrest people. Um, he doesn't kill any. Well, people die, and he tells people that's a accidental exodus or whatever, you know. Like, but he is very much he is fulfilling his role throughout, and how he acts is is this. You know, it's it's interesting because the guy, like the the um the story is actually very would lend itself more to a very drab setting. I think like like that the the setting would match the outfits, but I do think low budget sci fi you know, in the end of the day, it does lend itself to, like, wear a plastic mohawk and a hockey jersey and we'll put this on the poster kind of thing. Yeah, so let's let's get on to, to what he's doing and the basic plot. So, as you said, there's this place called uh, The Concern, which is the place where media is produced. No one else produces media. They have 100% control. There's a bomb threat there. And this guy, the police guy, who's called Janssen, is given f- four days to, to solve who's behind it. So basically, there's there's not actually a bomb. Well, it's not clear, but um, at this point, we think there wasn't actually a bomb. So he's trying to solve the hoax, basically. Yes, um, yeah. Which is kind of weird that the importance is placed on this investigation, right? Like, it's a bomb hoax. Like nothing's happened, but the chief of police is involved. They've got their best man on the job. So I thought that was kind of strange. Yeah, no, definitely. I think one part of it is they keep emphasizing how much it costs. You know, yeah, they to, don't want to evacuate it, the building. Yeah, because it cost them. I think it's two million. They say in the in the movie that it cost them to evacuate the building and then unevacuate it. It actually reminded me of the scene in one of the first episodes of Twin Peaks where they shut down the sawmill and all they can talk about is how much it cost to shut it down and start it up again. But yeah. uh, so it part of it is that. But I think like it becomes clear as the movie goes on why you know this is part of something that's being set up basically, mm-hmm. um, and. Again, the movie doesn't really make that easy for you, right? No. Like, because everything is delivered in such this deadpan way. You're like, is this important or what? And like, it's also extremely like weird and ridiculous and Fassbinder's talking to people on like video phones and stuff. But it is definitely this sense of, oh, this has to be resolved because this can't happen again. Because mm. not because this can't happen again. It's this can't happen. Like they don't report it in any of the media. Obviously, they own the media or whatever. But they, even when he's arriving at the scene, he gets a call from his superior and it says, "Turn your sirens off." You know, and there's this emphasis that, like, you know, he's in plain clothes, not because, again, not because he's this rebellious kind of figure. He's in, he's in what his version of plain clothes, because the police have to be invisible. Like, the only uniformed kind of force you see are these sort of militarized psychiatrists, which definitely the idea that they're helping people because, as they allude to, drinking is illegal in this society, but it is also, there's endemic alcoholism, which you kind of get the sense that they're using to, like, mass enslave people. And he he himself, of Jensen, he also an alcoholic. So um, even when the Combine guy looks him up on a computer during the investigation, it shows all of his commendations and everything. And then it fully says on the computer, he's an alcoholic, which is totally illegal, you know. But it is this odd kind of shaggy dog story of him going around and having watched this a couple of times, there are story points that would like be crucial to follow the investigation that are 
given less than no weight. Like he's talking to some guy and he asks him what scissors he uses to to cut up the thing that the ransom note is written on. Yeah, um, I didn't get that. Yeah, and, and the, yeah, and the thing is, he was it's torn by hand, so the guy admits to it, and he's of the level where you can tell taking this fall like a kind of very traditional gangster movie thing or indeed like a key part of one of the seasons of the thick of it if you take a fall at a certain level you can come back you know with all that kind of credibility so there's he encounters a guy kind of trying to do that that he's able to discount but as you go through you see this his his emphasis and again it's it's weird because this performance and it is a fantastic performance by Fassbender, right? And it's his last big performance and is one of his only starring role in someone else's film. But he he is not being rebellious. Like he even says to his second in command, who's another guy who's in a lot of Fassbender movies, his catchphrase is avoid unnecessary remarks, right? That's what he says yeah. to people whenever any kind of exciting semi-Sherlock Holmes sort of, you know, theories are being thrown around. He just says, avoid un- unnecessary remarks. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of, that is a cool thing, right? That's cool that he says that, and it's funny. But kind of uh, towards the end, you realize, oh, he's following a pattern and a system. Like, he's not, like, the idea that he won't think creatively about motives or anything isn't just a throwaway thing. It's, like, central to why he was picked. This sort of... Uh, efficiency in a certain direction if you know mm. what i mean like this this he is not picked because he is this eccentric that solves crimes no one else can he is picked because he is very effective at creating a narrative right which is kind of what the company do as well you know the whole thing is about creating this narrative for people and that is indeed what the film is about as well this sort of um this uh you know giant corporation who controls everything they need, and maybe they don't, you know, it does, just doesn't need to be reported on, but there is a feeling that they should create a story for what they eventually do at the end that makes sense. Hmm. I found it um, quite difficult to understand his motivations at times because, so as you said before, he's like kind of a classic noir detective character in a way, like lonely existent, lives for the job, alcoholic. So when I so there's this idea that all he cares about is his perfect case record. Uh, as you mentioned, he's got all these convictions for um, catching people drinking alcohol despite being alcoholic. So yeah, he's, he he wants to fulfill this perfect record. But at the same time, there's points where he seems to be offered like a way out of the case as you move towards the end, and he doesn't seem to be interested in taking it. So I, it's not it was never quite clear to me. Like on one level, it seemed like he didn't care about the truth. He seemed he cared about just getting through and keeping his record, but he didn't seem to want to take the way out that he was offered. Yeah, so I think that is partially bad filmmaking, right? <laughs> Might be partially to blame for there. But I also think that there is an element of, and again, it ties into the outfits and it ties into a lot of this stuff, that if you work to uphold a system like this, you want to be the one guy who doesn't. You know, you want to be the one person and a lot of these systems and like these societies, you know, where everything is supposed to be perfect or whatever thrives by. And this is, again, the big theme at the end of the film or the big reveal by encouraging a certain level of rebelliousness. And a little bit of it to me feels like that where it's like, well, I'm going to keep going with this. You know, he feels like he's kind of doing this rogue thing. But really, this is part of, again, 
you know the the structure does that make sense or do, do you know what i mean yeah 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 he's he's sort of because he's he's kind of presented as like he's this slightly like rogue like he won't answer calls from the the chief and stuff he's like yeah oh, you know i do what i want i'm like a maverick but at the same time so yeah he wants to almost fulfill that role but at the same time he's never going to because he's he's just um well you can, you can see that he's a hypocrite that's made obvious um, so it's quite clear that really he he can't perform that role that he might like to. There's a weird scene where he kind of murders a guy as well. Um, after there's a yes. chase in the in the concern building, it's not quite clear what happens to me. Happens there to me. Um, he's chasing this guy. He manages to to hit him with with one shot, I think, because there's some blood like on something, and then the guy gets in a forklift and starts driving towards him. And then there's like a gunshot, but I don't think that he fired it. And then the guy stops. But again, is that was that bad? Was that bad filmmaking? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, like I, don't, I don't want to continually tell you that you're right, but you are. Like if you're ever watching this movie and you're like, why did that happen? It's because Wolf Graham might not be the best person okay. in the world at making movies. But then still, um, it's, it's kind of a weird scene, isn't it? Because the guy is then then stops, and then he just like unloads his gun into him shot after shot and then just gives him the police salute which is a thumbs up just standing there yeah yeah and he and he like he goes past him on a conveyor belt or something because he like he like salutes his way which is yeah the thumbs up out of the screen and you get the feeling again that's that's going to be an accidental i mean the the scene where the guy he knocks into the guy and the guy crashes the car and he stops and he turns around to his colleague and says that's an overdose is like you know that's kind of his attitude to killing people like it's just like well this is just going to happen but I do think he the idea that this salute and this show of pride especially because the you know the um, Zeke Isle or whatever is now a thumbs up which is not the most subtle thing in the world but hey like (laughs) the idea that that is a grim joke you know, that this authority and this whole belief system is a total fucking grim joke and, like, you can just give that salute to somebody you've just killed and that isn't registered as a murder. That definitely occurred to me when I was watching that, you know, that he's sort of, again, this, he has that level, part of reaching his level is you're allowed to think, you know, 15% of it or 20% of it is a grim joke and as you go up, the power structure you realize more and more of it is totally meaningless you know like you can often measure powers in these kind of super you know super corporations or you know you know kind of fascist corporation things in sci-fi by how much the person realizes everything is a lie yeah um but like no i will say and the the people shouting cosmopampus at him um yeah i was gonna ask you about so so there's um chrismopampus or whatever it is um is vaguely defined but is is an enemy to the the concerns the the guy in charge of the concern is called the the blue panther and we know there's someone called or some somebody called chrismo pompus who's an enemy there's there's a comic that kind of depicts battles between chrismo pompus and blue panther and there seems to be this some kind of conflation between chrismo pompus and jansen as you say people keep shouting at him and there's one of the comics actually depicts him as Christmas Pompus. Why are they being conflated? Is that like the um uh the what's the group called? The kind of the revolution group, the Procos? Oh yes. Yeah, is yeah, that yeah, is Procos. that them 
mistaking his potential to like deliver justice and fulfill like the symbolic role of Chrismo Pompus or something. I think so. I I do think that that mistaking him for the idea. So he meets the guy that draws the comic, right? And that 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 guy immediately tries to kill himself uh, because he. When you create these narratives, you may not actually want them to you know end up at your door or whatever. But yeah, no, there's definitely that sense of potential you know that they think oh like is he this guy that is going to embody the again it's not it's not a hundred percent clear but i do think that this it does you know again come into the end of the movie that there's an idea that you can apply to someone or you can there's a feeling of maybe overthrowing something you know there's this kind of and the fact that it's done through a comic is very person you know purposeful as well that there is a state created kind of revolutionary idea you can adopt and uh again he is this outwardly rebellious figure he's a bit quite like judge dread in a way um like because it's this really outsized character that when you really think about it is just this blank face of uh kind of fascist whatever but yeah the, the cosmopampus thing is is um i think part of it is just the idea that all of culture has been so ground down that instead of people having, you know, like in La Chinois or whatever, having massive, you know, ar- political arguments that, uh, you know, <laughs> that cells can have these massive political arguments and, and, you know, disagreements about Bakunin or whatever. Instead, they're just shouting like Batman, basically, <laughs> at people. You know, like that's, you know, like I think one of the things that stands with uh, Wolf Graham not being the best director in the world is inanity is a very uh, potent weapon in this narrative or whatever. And it definitely comes up a couple of times, this enforced inanity. So, Okay, what about... So another very important element is the 31st floor, which right at the beginning after the, the bomb threat, somebody says something about it being the 31st floor and someone else just says, oh, that's a, that's just a, a joke. We always blame stuff that goes wrong on the 31st floor. It doesn't exist. So a lot of the a lot of the film actually revolves around him looking for the 31st floor in the concert. It always seems to have like a, a magical dimension at time in the sense that it wasn't clear whether it exists existed or not if you see what i mean yes yeah yeah no definitely and that's the air of myth about it is perpetuated by a lot of people and you know it's interesting again that they mention it jokingly but then when questioned about it it kind of they kind of trail off and even one of the one the people who talk about it ends up as an accidental death um yeah. fairly quickly afterwards but yeah the 31st floor i mean he goes in there at one stage and doesn't see anything and i think that might be you know again i might be being very generous to the film here but i think his inability to actually perceive what would be in the 31st floor is part of it right like he can't like so what the 31st floor is right i'm gonna this is technically spoiling the movie i think this movie's basically unspoilable yeah, um it's fine to in fact i, I don't yeah. understand this movie so i want you to spoil it so okay so so right so sorry sorry i picked this one i should have I, I, I anyway, it. well that's good so right so the 31st floor is when this company bought up every media outlet every you know every paper big or small or whatever it's just papers in the book but it's all media outlets in the in the film they went around to all these key and the public intellectual guys who were against 
the government, you know, like, so there were like philosophers or people who were speaking out against, against state power in a particular way. You know, I think this, this idea probably would have been a bit more, made a bit more sense when these people were still on television as they used to be when this movie was made or whatever. But they went to all these people and said, oh, we're not going to shut you down. We're actually going to keep you or we, we will offer you to be in this publication. You can make this publication and, you know, of all these great minds, unlimited budget, but we, we have to approve it. But you can say whatever you want. You can do the most outlandish stuff possible. And they, they tell them it will kind of be like an opportunity to like, almost like an opportunity for cultural renewal. Like they can produce something amazing that will really impact society. Yeah, they're told like, this is, you know, this is what you want to do and we'll help you. It's good for society if we have this kind of thought. So they're all bought up into the 31st floor and they start working on it. And <laughs> there is a point made in both the film and book, I think, that uh, it takes them a long time to agree on anything, which is a pretty cruel joke, but it is true to life that all these like outsized revolutionary guys are all massively disagreeing about everything. Yeah. But uh, And eventually they get on it, you know, and they produce this book and they bring it to the guys uh, the, the, and they, none of their ideas get censored. You know, the big emphasis that none of the ideas get censored, but they say, we want this to be even better. So go back and work on it. We want to make the printing process better. And eventually it becomes apparent that they're never going to release the paper. Mm. And they have actually put all of the... Uh, all of the public intellectuals or anybody that would speak out anybody who is anti-authoritarian or whatever has these ideas they've circuited them or put them sorry put them in the 31st floor and so it's in the book they're told oh it has to be profitable obviously you know like don't worry about but you know it has to be profitable for us to keep using it and they all agree with that but it's fine but because they never release it they only keep doing these test print runs they managed to put everybody in the 31st floor in massive debt as well. So they, so the one guy who gets out, Franco Nero, who, who is the guy, it turns out, who sent the fake threat because he wanted to bring attention to the 31st floor. He only gets out because he has an inheritance and he's able to pay off this bill and it's total happenstance, you know. So they're all in debt. All of the kind of rebellious or whatever thought or, you know, individual thought in the country is in this 31st floor, working away, producing these you know, really interesting ideas and fantastic publications that on purpose nobody is seeing. So it kind of reminds me of uh, stuff like the Red Bull Music Club. You know the Red Bull Music Academy? No. So that's this thing where it is really, really interesting long-form interviews with uh, musicians that would never get an interview like that otherwise, you know? And they do all these articles and everything like that. But it is still owned by Red Bull, mm. you know? And there is this idea of... When corporate corporations buy indie kind of producers or indie media and just tell them, oh, just do what you would be doing anyway. And, you know, that's YouTube, that's whatever. But if you introduce that idea of the profit motive or introduce that level of corporate control, one of the things about Kamikaze 89 and Murder on the 31st Floor is its censorship it's not direct censorship, you know, it's not like, you know, classic, like, what every dad in a comment section says, you know, oh, Stalin, you know, erasing people from history. Yeah. It's enforced, listen, this is just for the good of everybody. Like, in the book, they point out that they edit 
violence out of football matches and they and it's not nobody is telling them but it's just it would be better and this idea of morality people self-censor you know yeah. like you see now in in newspapers in in the uk partially because internships and whatever have taken hold so much only people of a certain class can be in newspapers and because you don't get paid enough you you know you're you're making a reputation as much as a living so people naturally want to enforce this idea that they're you know that they're right and that you know that this conserve and they feel kind of paternalistic because they've been chosen and this idea that you can risk your neck and then go right somewhere else is a lot less prevalent or that you would have actually experienced any of the things you write about you know so that element of risk goes out of it as well or that element of actual experience and this kind of remove is what they're cultivating in kamikaze 89 they have this room full of these people producing this stuff and they don't they just won't do anything with it you know it's the ultimate cruel trick right they're like you can have an endless budget you just have to compromise but the compromise is no one reads it you know? yeah it's quite uh prescient in that in that sense like you would expect as i say because at the time you still we you still would have had like east germany and uh you know communism saying the, the temptation was be to see to think of censorship in that old way you talked about like literally you you can't do that you can't say that that is censored that can't be printed um whereas this is a much more sophisticated um, form of censorship which is far more relevant to what i think you experience today i think it's it's not something that just applies to media like there's this idea isn't there that this is debate within politics as to what you can do like inside the system and it's i think the films definitely try to say something about working within the system and becoming complicit you know the idea oh we need to work from the inside to change things but sometimes when you work from within the system that neuters your ability to actually do anything worthwhile which i think is kind of what the 31st floor is is meant to be about yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely an idea. I mean, no one wants to feel like they've sold out, right? Everybody wants to feel like they've bought in. Mm. You know, they're investing. You know, like they're they're you know they're in the system because they're doing something. It's that that thing we we spoke about previously that everybody wants that five percent of rebellious streak. You know, they want to wear the pattern socks or the wacky tie or whatever while still following the dress code, and that idea of working within the system what you can do within the system you know it's it's why acab is like not just a phrase but it is like a legitimate political platform in a way because it suggests that a good person operating in a system designed like that can can only legitimize the system to a certain extent Mm. right that is definitely a big thing in this book where or this film sorry where like you see all of these people and they're all like, I'm really creative or I succeeded in this way. And all of it is to enforce this one thing. Even the guy who has left, who has got away from the 31st floor and is trying to bring attention to it, doesn't realize that he can do this thing to bring attention to it. But if they, if nobody writes about it, it doesn't happen. Um, and not only that, by the end of the film, this is a big spoiler, but hey, I, again, yeah. I don't think that applies here. He is instrumentalized as well, where what they do is he has a bomb hoax. They know he doesn't know anything about bombs, but they get uh, Janssen to investigate because they know it has to be this guy, right? Because he writes it on the reason Janssen has such a small list of people to go through is it's written on a certificate you get when you leave the company um, or work a certain amount of time in the company. So they know he won't set off a bomb. So what they do is they set everything up 
and they have another threat come in at the end. And Janssen knows, or thinks he knows, that he's caught the guy, so there won't be any bomb. You know, there won't be any bomb, and the guy didn't know about it anyway. But then he realises this entire thing is being set up, so there is the possibility of a bomb threat that's in everybody's head. You know, we, we, we know which guy did it. The Patsy has kind of been picked even before the crime happens, that they use this as an excuse to eliminate the 31st floor. Even at the start of the, the book, there's a question that, like, should we just let the building blow up because we could get the insurance money and maybe have a better premises is like something yeah. that's considered, you know. It's kind of, it's kind of weird that they want to blow up the thirty first floor as well, right? Because I guess it's a symbolic thing really. But like the the people that have decided that they're not the people who are rebelling against them are the people that have left the thirty first floor and are now like operating outside. So like it wasn't clear so at the end, as you say, like there's this, there's this new renewed bomb bomb threat. It's not clear what actually happens. So they're both running up the stairs. Um, sorry, both Jansen and his uh, I don't know assistant partner Anton. They're both running up the stairs. He abandons Anton on the stairs, and because he says he can get up there quicker, so he just kind of goes, "Yeah, all right, then you go up there." And he walks down the stairs, gets a helicopter to the top, goes into the shoots a lock on a door and goes in we don't actually see the room and there's like this report that he did save people but then they died anyway in hospital and it's not clear was there a bomb and like did he save anybody well i think so personally and you know obviously the millions of people who've seen this film have all the, these theory well not really and nobody knows what the <laughs> fuck happens at the end of it right but like i think that there was a bomb he tried to save people they were obviously killed because this is a closing of a loop, right? Because as good as it is to have all these rebellious people producing all this stuff and nobody seeing it, eliminating the possibility of them is even more powerful. Like, the next level up from placating revolutionaries or whatever, even a little bit, is to just remove them, remove... Because they're the idea of rebellion, right? They're not just, like, the rebellious people. They are these kind of thought leaders. They're the idea of it. So they're removing even the possibility of... I think that's it anyway. That's what it felt like to me. This definite sense of everything being... I mean, there is a very, very strange scene where the police inspector says you did... He stops telling him you solved the case and he starts saying you did the job perfectly to to Janssen and that's when Janssen realises what's going to happen and that the whole thing was kind of set up. I mean, it is a a very strange sort of set up, but... uh, it i mean it's even in, in the book is even more remote i think he's in his other he knows he calls his his uh, deputy or whatever who is in the middle of saying yeah we got everyone out but obviously there won't be a bomb and he tells them how to avoid falling debris because he's so certain it's going to happen but yeah i think that's it anyway i think this ending or whatever it ties into a couple of fast bender movies so there's one called the third generation which is about it's been a long time since i've seen it now but it's about a terrorist group who are funded by a mysterious benefactor uh, to kidnap this guy. Turns out to be the guy himself. He basically has himself kidnapped so more people buy his computers, you know. And it's kind of saying that, oh, these, you know, this funding from groups or wherever, like, what, where does it come from? What is it for? What are they being used for? And also... There's another movie uh, called Fox and His Friends, which Fassbender made. It's one of the other movies, few movies he stars in. And he plays this kind of, uh, again, this figure. It's the exact 180 opposite from Janssen. He is this really, he's really good looking because this is Fassbender when he's physically at his most fit, right? 
but he is really good looking, but he is this um kind of gay carnival worker who wins the lottery, gets taken in by these kind of rich upper class guys, and ends up fleeced of all his money. Like through class awkwardness, basically, is forced into all these situations, fleeced of all his money, and ends up literally on the at the end the end of the film is him dead with people taking the money out of his pockets and the jacket off his back because he dared move class and was eliminated from existence right so he is kind of the impossibility of trying to be upwardly mobile is what he is in fox and his friends and then in kamikaze he is this this is what it is like to exist within on your exact plane of a system basically unwaveringly you know and then of course in kamikaze 89 it's about to be dead fassbender so he's covered in sweat and he looks like he's gonna die because he is and uh, it's sort of it is the horrible sci-fi version of the character in Fox and his friends, basically. Um, I just wanted to return to the role of the police for a minute. Uh, you mentioned before that they're they're generally speaking they are dressed in white clothes, like um, hospital workers or psychiatric staff. And I do think there's they're definitely depicted as performing a psychiatric function where crime is treated as like a kind of mental disease. Like it's something wrong with you if you can't adjust to the way society is meant to function. Yeah, they're definitely like a state psychiatric kind of enforcement thing, right? Like, because again, talking about what all these words mean, like, uh, you know, no, there's no children out of marriage. Um, and it is suggested in the book that that's partially because there's stuff in the water um, and also malnourishment uh, is one of the things that, that's plummeted the birth rate. But it's also like nobody is being arrested but you never hear how many people are being institutionalized, you know, and alcohol is illegal, but most people seem to be alcoholics. And then that's treated as an addiction rather than a, you know, than a, a crime. And uh, I do think like I was reminded, I saw a picture of, I think, a tube station in London that was, uh, I wish I could remember now exactly what it was, but it was basically like if you're experiencing some sort of like psychiatric distress or something like that tell an officer you know and this idea that police who are for the like the protection of private property are are supposed to be this everything you know and can easily slip into a caregiver mode you know like because all it is is authority it's just you can't comply to this authority is basically how it works and i think again i think the source material would have come out at a time when anti-psychiatry was very big Mm. um in the and not really you know so it wasn't as folded into uh society as it is now in anti-psychiatry especially in the 60s and and per wallu who wrote this was kind of infamously this very very hardcore marxist he later went on to write these crime novels which are infinitely better than his novels on his own with with his wife mad soul and uh they are actually about police officers as people and uh they're always praised for being very gritty or whatever but the big function of those books is to show the impossibility, psycho- the impossibility psychologically of being a person in a role like that. You know how they just don't rec- reconcile. I think it does speak to something as well. This idea of like crime or problems that people have being like a symptom of not being able to adjust properly, in the way we like ignore structural issues. Like you know, you have like mindfulness. And over these other ways of dealing with like increased stress that like employers will often encourage and stuff, and you know you have all these 
like self-help and technique things to feel more efficient and deal with stress ignoring the fact that it might be like low wages and difficulty getting housing and debt and economic and living conditions that actually causes these kind of problems i think it's speaking to something there like like you mentioned like there's that guy who says so we ban alcohol then we create the conditions that drive them to drink it then we beat them for it and Janssen says to him like don't say that again which is the idea is he's basically speaking to the structural issues that you're meant to ignore because anything that people do wrong it's like their failure to adjust to society definitely i really love that bit actually as well because that isn't uh, an avoid necessary unnecessary comments but that is a just never say that again yeah. you can't say that you can't say anything about structural but just don't and that mindfulness thing is so dead on you know that cbt or whatever where like i did a mindfulness course um because i was unemployed and you know whatever uh, a couple of years ago or a few years ago and I remember vividly thinking that I was there partially because I had a lot of time and I was like, maybe this will help my ADHD or something like that. Right. And everyone else there had like three kids and was working 12 hours a day on their own company. or what. Like it was all people who were like at the time I was just like, wow, everyone has a lot more money than me here. That's weird. But like looking back on it, they were all people who had put themselves under the kind of stress you shouldn't put yourself yeah. under. You know, like it shouldn't be something you have to deal with. No. And that they were like, well, obviously, what it is, you know, how how society is 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 unchangeable, you know, and there's no other way. Yeah. So we just have to adjust to this, you know. I'm, we, you know, the 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 thing about us being better able to adjust to this is now we can do more work, you know, like that's the end. I mean, that's what all Google, that's what every startup is about, you know. They're like, oh, we'll give you your meals for free, and there's beds here, and all it is is you'll never leave. Facebook is literally building accommodation now. Um, and they're like, oh, look at this. We you know we're really looking after our workers by, you know, by essentially reintroducing feudalism. Yeah. Right? You know, you know, like where they're just these endangered people in this thing. It's uh, this idea that you are always the problem. You know, like in mental health in Ireland, the big campaign is please talk. Mm. And it puts all of the onus on the person who is suffering the issue. Um, even I remember the most, and this is like something that would be in Kamikaze 89, actually. There was an advertising campaign that one of the big and the mental health organizations in Ireland did in conjunction with a tea company, it was Lions, where in the main train station in Dublin, um, they put a table and they had a cup of tea for everybody who'd committed suicide in the country in the last year. And they said that, and these were like branded cups, mm. right? And they said each one of these represents a conversation that didn't happen. And I've never been more disgusted at anything, you know, because like that is on so many levels, you know, putting the onus on somebody else saying that, oh, like, you know, the way consumerism can solve all problems. You know, if you buy this make of tea, you'll have these conversations that will stop people killing. You know, it's such an insidious thing. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely like, I mean, that it's, it's said plainly in the film, right? as you said, you know, like we create the conditions, you know, we make alcoholism illegal. We create the conditions that drives them into it. We beat them up for that. You know, like there's plenty of stuff. But the crack epidemic or whatever in, in, in the US that ties very closely even to that, you know. True. Right, there's a couple of things in the film that I wanted to ask you about. Just purely a few things that I didn't understand again. <laughs> so sure. one one was um so there's a bit where uh Janssen's attacked by cross dressing balaclava wearing 
I presume they're employed by the concern to take him out. I, I don't really know. But in any case, he's he's attacked by them and he's, he's saved by Anton. He then sort of asks Anton to throw him his weapon as, as Anton goes off to pursue these people, which he does. And then he stands up in his room and then he just starts shooting shooting around his own room. And then he points the gun at his own head and then it cuts to like the pursuit and then he's like bursting out the door, chasing them again. I just wondered if you had any idea like what that was meant to be about. That might be that to me. Like, okay, there's the there's the thing you could say, like, oh, you know, he can't exist in this role and his he might as well inflict violence on himself than somebody else, you know, because he's just part of that bigger structure. But honestly, I think that bit is in the film because it's like, look, it's Rainer Winner Fassbender. You know, like, look, it's this guy who is this famously self-destructive artist who, like, I mean, he died because his heart exploded from doing so much cocaine, right? Like, and he did cocaine because he produced, I think, on average, he made four or five feature length films a year. And these are some of the best films, you know, certainly I've ever seen. He did a 20 hour TV series that was really one film called, like, like the current kind of Twin Peaks called Berlin Alexanderplatz. Like, he is... He was this guy who wore himself out. So I think that was more of a nod at him being him yeah, okay. rather than... And his his movies, that seems like a very him approach anyway, to be honest, because his movies have any private character moment in his films are always people doing like incredibly weird, kind of fucked up private stuff and then going off and trying to be normal again, you know? Mm. Okay. Uh, one final thing. Do you have any idea what this... There's a, there's a repetition of this idea is something to do with like the moon landing so he's got a big picture of the the moon landing on his wall um which he goes and like stares at at some point and like at the end of the film we have the countdown and we have him again staring at this picture i wondered like the only thing i could sort of link that to obviously the moon landing is in some ways seen as like this symbolic moment of progress and hope for what humanity was and where it was going and what technology could do. Is that just as simple as like juxtaposing that with like the decayed reality that we find ourselves in? Yeah, I mean that is that's probably in in certain respects, obviously not like when examined a lot closer, but you could regard the moon landing as the purest act of good a extremely capitalist society ever produced you know in or are they are like a thing that was purely you know driven by all of the ideals it was an actual manifestation of all of the ideals espoused by this um kind of bootstrapping like capitalist whatever society you know that actually happened and was supported by you know (laughs) everyone and, and was this quintessentially american which is you know what the system is or whatever or typified by you know quintessentially american act of pure pure progress or just purity basically i think i reviewed this film on on all units called top of the heap which is kind of about this conflicted police officer black police officer in the 70s mm-hmm. and he he keeps fantasizing that he is an astronaut and part of that is that that is the uniform you can put on that nobody will hate you for Mm. you know and i think like i've seen a couple of different movies where people who are in you know in the army or in 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 uh, the police or whatever are part of these state kind of superstructures 
nobody hates astronauts you know <laughs> like i mean i mean flat earthers probably do or whatever but like they're a pretty minuscule uh, proportion of the population yeah. but like i think that's part of it as well that he is the total manifestation of the reality of that kind of system and he is staring mournfully i think he like mimes having sex with the thing at one stage the the Neil yeah. Armstrong thing which is again that's just fassbender i think being him but uh you know you have one end and the other right like it's it's total polar opposites of this kind of ostensibly the same idea cool well thank you for uh picking this film bringing it to our attention today well, i think it's it's certainly an interesting one it's bizarre but um it is interesting and like i say i think it's got some uh quite pressing ideas for the the time it was made i would recommend that if people want to hear you talk more about film they should listen to your podcast all units which is really cool it's like well you can describe it better than me like a breakdown of the thriller genre right yeah so i i basically um i did this thing last year called hundreds of dead bodies about horror movies and i sort of talked about all the different aspects of horror movies but i did it in a month and it nearly killed me so i decided i had the same thing planned out for another month um, and then I realized I could make it slightly longer and do it for two years instead. So every two weeks I take two movies and I use it to talk about a different aspect of both thrillers and the themes that come up in thrillers. So the series at the moment at time of recording is work. Um, and I'm just looking at like how work is shown because thrillers are one of the few movies where actual work is depicted in detail. Um, so that's what I'm kind of talking about at the moment. And then every second week I do this thing called Calling All Units, which is much more whatever um but is vaguely around thrillers or genre film but like yeah so i mean i would appreciate if you give it a, thank you for saying kind stuff about it and maybe some of your listeners might like it as well so yeah it's, i do i think you're doing you are doing a, a similar thing to what i'm doing in a sense like with that it's really interesting that when you did um like uniform talking about you know like symbolic power of uniform in the, in the uh, for the police and stuff but yeah it's really interesting and intelligent discussion of film and i'd recommend it to people so that you can just search for all units on itunes or whatever um is there a twitter account people can follow yeah uh, come in all units is the is the twitter account and the facebook as well i don't do anything with facebook though so good luck but i do i do post on the twitter but yeah i mean the main thing is just to follow on you know whatever podcasting program you're using i think at this stage if you put in all units it'll come up uh yeah yeah that that's it really i i would uh I appreciate any feedback on it and thanks very much for for listening i really like what you're doing with your show as well it's it's it is rare and if i do say so myself a little bit thankless to produce a podcast outside of the kind of set formats but it yeah. always to me it's certainly what i'm trying to do and what you are achieving always is extremely interesting and shows you the possibility of podcasting outside the kind of set formats so well thank you very much and thank you very much for your time great thank you so that's the end of my conversation with Sean. Thanks for listening. As always, if you've enjoyed it, if you wouldn't mind taking the time to give me a rate, rating or review on iTunes or whatever you used to listen to this, that does really make a difference in terms of getting the podcast more exposure, getting more people listening, tell someone you know about it. Or as I said in my intro, maybe take a look at the new Patreon page, patreon.com slash utopian horizons. If you can afford to sling a, a quid or two my way, that would be uh, very much appreciated. If you've got any feedback on the podcast, ideas for stuff you'd like to see me cover, you can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com, tweet me at utopianhorizons, or get in touch on facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. 
as I said before, it won't be a big gap until the next episode. I've already got the interview recorded, so I just need to get that edited, and I'll probably put that out in a couple of weeks. So, yeah, until then, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 